Great singing. Thank you very much. Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 11. We are moving at a pretty good pace through the book of of Revelation, considering all the information that's there. We're going to be covering uh, most of chapter 11 tonight. We're going to be covering verses 1 through verse 14, which leads us up to the to the seven trumpet, and you can see by the uh, the slide behind you that that this is a, a turning point in the in the book of of, of Revelation. Um, it's still part of what's called the interlude. It's a pause between the uh, right before the the seventh trumpet uh, is 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 sounded, and then the bold judgments that, uh, that come. And not last Sunday night, but Sunday night before, we were in Revelation chapter 10, and we saw that um, it was, we called it the calm before the, before the storm. And, and I'm, I, frankly, I'm thankful, uh, even as a reader, that that pause is in there. Definitely thankful as a preacher, <laughs> because when you just start getting into this, the seal after seal and trumpet after trumpet and the the devastation that's going to come uh, upon the earth it is uh, it's overwhelming it overwhelms your senses and uh, we still have that in uh, in chapter uh, 11 and a few chapters beyond and then you're just going to see the tidal wave of God's wrath unleashed in the in the the latter part of the book. But the good news is that that's not the end. The judgment is not the end. After the judgment comes the king and the kingdom, and then the new heavens and the new earth. Praise the Lord. In chapter 10, this is titled, The Mighty Angel in the Little Book. John sees this this mighty angel. Got a cord wrapped around my leg there. You talk about doing the hokey pokey. I'm liable to do it right, right on my behind back here. John sees a mighty angel who has this little book or, or little scroll. And on the scroll is written a message that John gets to see. And just about the time he's getting ready to do his duty and record it, um, God tells him not to, not to record it. It's only for him. And then he gets this really odd command to eat the book, symbolically take in the message. And, and whenever John does, the... The, the message of justice and the coming king is sweet to the taste. But the reality of, of, of the, the masses that will, that will perish makes him sick to his stomach. And, and we ended there saying that that really should be our, uh, our response. Um, we, we long for Jesus to come. We rejoice to the fact that justice will finally be done. You know, everybody wants justice. They just don't want it for themselves, right? You want justice for everybody else. You want mercy for yourself. And yet there's a part of us that does long for righteousness to, to reign. And so that's sweet. Um, but we also should be grieved that many people will perish with, uh, without, without Christ. And, and even in the final moments... Before this, this fury of, of judgment is unleashed, God tells John to preach again, to call people to repent again, um, showing that, uh, that he's still willing, that, that these would not perish, but desiring them to, desiring them to repent. 
Now in chapter 11, you see this, the final scene in the, in the drama is, uh, is set. And it centers around uh, two witnesses. And in Revelation chapter 11, John sees the future temple that will be rebuilt. It's not, it's not built yet, but there will be another temple that will be built in, in Jerusalem. And it will be there during the tribulation period. It's spoken of in the, in the Old Testament. Um, two witnesses, he sees two witnesses that will proclaim God's message. They'll have special powers. They won't be able to be killed while they're, while they're preaching. Until their testimony is complete, until God's timetable for them to preach is done, and then the Antichrist will, will take his place in the second half of the tribulation period, and, and when he does, the witnesses are, are brutally murdered, the world rejoices, and yet uh, their celebration is, is short-lived. Um, three and a half days they get to celebrate. And then the two heralds are resurrected before their very eyes, called up into heaven by a loud voice. And from that point forward, um, mercy will be, will be limited. Now, before we get into chapter 11, I'll tell you, chapter 11 is considered one of the most difficult in all of Revelation. There's probably more interpretations about Revelation chapter 11 than than any number of the of the other ones and 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 a lot of those interpretations have to do with how with how you approach the bible not just revelation i mean the questions are is this a literal temple or is it figurative um, are the witnesses real people or or do the witnesses uh represent some uh, some symbol of god's faithful that uh that will be preaching, calling people to repentance during that, during that time. If they are two specific people, as I alluded to this morning, what Richard Jett wants to know is, uh, who are they? Is this Moses and Elijah? Is this uh, Elijah and Enoch? Are, these two, uh, are they two other unnamed witnesses that, that, that are to come? Is this a literal three and a half years of the numbers, the days in there? Are they literal Days? Can you can you say this is three and a half years? Is the is their resurrection and call up to heaven a symbol for the rapture? Some people take that as a as a as a mid tribulational rapture that's taking place. Is this a resurrection of some kind of the saints, or is it or is it a literal resurrection, a mini rapture, if you will, of two people, which are the the two witnesses who who come on the scene? And the answer to those questions really lies within the, the method that we use to interpret the entire Bible, not just, not just Revelation. I totally reject that Revelation is some type of mysterious book that God didn't intend for us to understand or read. Clearly, it's prophetic. There's symbolism there, so you have to be diligent. You have to know your Old Testament. You have to, you have to dig, but, but, the Bible was written for our edification. It's for us to understand. It's the, it's the revelation of God. And Revelation specifically tells us there's blessing for those who read it and those who heed the, heed the words. So the idea that, that it's, it's somehow this, uh, this 
this book that you can't interpret and that the church shouldn't shouldn't hear it is rejected by the Bible alone, and I would surely surely reject that. I would also say that um, as clear as God is on everything else in the in the Bible, I don't think that that He would make the end muddy. <laughs> I mean, He's very clear about about exactly what He's doing in the Old Testament and with Israel. He's He's clear about salvation. He's clear about the church, and so I don't think He's going to be clear about all those other things and just kind of leave the end in this foggy, fuzzy mess that we just say, well, it really doesn't matter and, and we, can't, uh, we can't figure it out. And the answers to, to those questions that, that, that people have, have raised and the way that you interpret uh, Revelation 11, as I said, has, has to do with the method that you use to interpret the, the entire, entire Bible. When interpreting Scripture... Do you believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of the Bible? Meaning that the Bible is, is inspired by God down to every word, and therefore every word, all of it, carries the authority of God. Did God just inspire the message of the Bible, which some people will say, but the, the literal words don't matter. The grammar doesn't matter. The genre doesn't, doesn't matter. Now, when you think about that, that's logical nonsense. Because how could you ever determine the meaning of the Bible without words and without context and without how all those things uh, relate? Um, if you believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of, of Scripture, then you'll interpret the Bible naturally. Um, I say naturally uh, rather than literally, even though I believe in a literal interpretation because people take that word literally and say, well, do you literally mean that these, there are going to be locusts that look like these, uh, you know, these, these bees that are, that are running around? And the answer to that is you can be literal and understand that part of literal interpretation acknowledges symbolism, which is what a lot of prophetic literature is. Um, I would say an easy way to, uh, to, to describe that approach to the Bible is you just simply let the Bible speak. And you use what's called a grammatical, historical approach to interpretation. It's historical, meaning that uh, each Bible passage has, has one basic meaning, and it's firmly rooted in, in historical truth. There's... What was the author's original intent? What's the authorial intent of the passage? What was the original writer intending to communicate to the original hearer in that history, in that context, and, and in that time? It's, it's also grammatical. You, the words are related accurately according to, according to common principles of, of human language. Um, the Bible uses language the way any normal person would, would, would use it. And Scripture also interprets itself. Um, and so the answers that we need are in the Bible, and we can rightly divide it if we apply those, those rules of, of interpretation. It's the rules of the game. You wouldn't uh, just go out and start playing basketball without, without knowing the rules. But basketball has a specific set of, of rules. 
interpreting Scripture has a natural set of, of rules with language and context and, and history. If you don't approach it that way, then you're, you're, you're probably going to use some other method which would, which would lean on allegory or some theological interpretation or looking for spiritual meanings. And, and that damages the authority um, of, uh, of Scripture. And we're committed to a grammatical historical approach which treats the Bible um, as, as the Bible intends to be, to be treated. Um, God communicates His Word in language and context with clarity for the purpose that we would understand it and we can understand it. You don't have to search for hidden meanings in the Bible or read into it something that's, that's, that's not there. God provided His Word to read to be understood and ultimately to be obeyed. And so you and I can, can do that if we just let the text reign, the text speak. And when you do that to chapter 11 or with chapter 11, uh, it, it, things become very clear. Um, the great city in, in verse 8 is, is the literal city, Jerusalem. The time periods are literal periods of, periods of time, three and a half years. The, the witnesses are two specific individuals. The three and a half days in which they, they lay dead are literal three and a half days. It's a, it's a real resurrection. It's, it's a genuine earthquake. Those are all factual uh, events. And that's all in chapter 11. So let's read and see what God is unveiling here about the about the future. Revelation chapter 11, and we'll read the first 14 verses. John says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out, and don't measure, the court which is outside the temple. And do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These, it's the two witnesses, have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony... The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented them, tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God 
entered them, and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, I would outline this as the, the turning point in the tribulation. And really, the whole thing is about the two witnesses, but it begins with, uh, with the temple. So, I would title it the temple and the, and the two witnesses. In verses 1 and 2, you see the, the measured temple. So, I want you to look at, at verse 1. Because John is commanded here, he's given a read in verse 1, and he, it's like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship in it. Now the reed that, that he's given here is a, is a common plant. Uh, it's a plant that's grown, uh, and it grows, I should say, around the, around the Jordan Valley. It's, it's very straight, it's, it's sturdy, and it's very light. Uh, almost, it's not bamboo, but that's what is probably the easiest thing for us to relate because bamboo grows really tall and it's really straight and it's light and you can carry it around. And so these reeds would, would, would have grown and that's what they would have used them for. They would have been like a measuring tool. And John is commanded to rise and take this reed that was given to him and, um, He's told what to measure, and he's told what not to measure. Verse 1, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out or don't measure the court, which is outside the temple, the Gentile court. John's commanded... He's given a read, he's commanded to, to rise and measure, he's told what to measure, and he's told what not to measure. And, and the word that's used here, what he's told to measure, the temple of God is specific. It's the, it's the holy place, which includes the holies of holies. It's the, it's the inner sanctuary. And the altar that's there is, is the brazen altar in the, in the inner courtyard, it's, it's where the people could, could come and, and make their offerings. It's not the inner altar. It's, it's the holy place, the holies of holies, and the brazen altar. So you, you basically have the, the inner part of the temple where worship would have taken place. And John is told to measure that, and he's told not to measure the outer court. It's where the Gentiles could, could come. The Gentiles couldn't come beyond that, that, outer, that outer court. Only the Jews, only those who were worshiping, true worshipers of, of God, could, could come into the, to the inner part. And I think that that's a, that's a key. It's, it's where the Gentiles were permitted, and, and, and he's told why in verse 2. It's been given to the Gentiles. 
and they will tread the holy city underfoot for for 42 months. This is uh this is a picture of the temple, the future temple that will be built during the tribulation period, the ter- the, the third temple if if you will. And it's going to be in Jerusalem, it's going to be in the holy city. And yet, just like today, Jerusalem is still going to be occupied. Jerusalem is occupied today. The Jews don't have control even over all of Jerusalem. Even though Jerusalem is a unified city now and it's in the middle of Israel, the Jews have actually, due to international pressure, given control of certain parts of the city to Muslims and and to others. The Muslims today control the literal Temple Mount. Why do the Jews go and pray at what's called the the Wailing Wall? Because that's the the side of the Temple Mount. That's not even where the Temple was. The the Temple would have been up there where the Dome of the Rock is, if, if you will. This would have been the wall, the side of the Temple, and that's as close as they can get to where the Holies of Holies would have been. The holies of holies were the temple. The temple would have been would have been set back, just about where uh, that wall would have been. It would have been on that that western side of the of of the wall. And so the Jews gather there. They declared that's a holy place because there is no temple. They can't get on top of the mount, and that's as close as they can get to where the the presence of 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 God was. And um, just like today, still in this day, there's going to be Gentile dominion in, in Jerusalem. And yet, the Jews are going to rebuild the temple and they're going to be worshipping there. They're going to reinstitute sacrifices during, during the, the, the tribulation period. Um, I think it was the first trip that I ever, I ever took to, to Israel. Um, Glenn Matthews was was there. How many of you remember Brother Glenn Matthews? Yeah, a number of you do. I think he's been like thirty some times by now. I think it was twenty six whenever whenever we went uh, we went the first time, and we were able to actually go on the Temple Mount. You don't usually get to do that. It's a it's a wild card because the Muslims control it, and they'll only open it to the public. Now, if you're a Muslim, you can go up there anytime you want. But they only open it to non-Muslims for a couple hours a day, and, and they're very capricious. I mean, there's no schedule. They can shut it down when they want to. You can be standing in line, and they'll say, you know, no go. You, you, you can't. But we were fortunate enough to get up on the, up on the Temple Mount. And, and there on top of the Temple Mount is, 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 is idolatrous, pagan, godless, antichrist, Islamic worship going on on top of the Temple Mount. And, and there, the Dome of the Rock is, uh, is there. And, and our guide, our Jewish guide, was not allowed to go with us. He had to stay behind, and then you had to follow their rules to, uh, to go up there. Well, one day... The Jews will have control again of the Temple Mount, and they will have a temple there, but they won't have dominion over over all of over all of Jerusalem. Even still, here in the tribulation period, and that's what what John tells us: it's been given to the Gentiles, meaning they they have dominion over it, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for for forty two months. Three and a half years. Now I want you to notice 
something that's missing from verse 1 and really the verses that followed. John was given a reed like a measuring rod. Now, what would you expect to, to come if John is given a reed that is to measure and he's commanded to measure? Wouldn't you expect somewhere in here to find some measurements? He measures and he finds it's however tall, however wide. And I want you to notice that there, that there are no dimensions ever given. No dimensions given for the measurement because the measurement wasn't to determine the size. It, it symbolized something else. Anytime God is seen measuring something or weighing something in the Bible... It implies his ownership. It implies his scrutiny. It implies his authority. He has the right to measure it. He has the right to weigh you in the balance. And God's scales determine the truth. He, in Zechariah 2, there's, there's a vision of a man measuring the city for judgment, meaning that God has the right or the authority to, to judge it. In Ezekiel 40... The temple, the future temple in the, in the kingdom is measured. Revelation chapter 21, in verses 15 through 17, the new Jerusalem is measured by God. And, and when God measures or weighs something, He's claiming authority. He's asserting His authority. He's establishing that and His ownership of it. And the fact that He can measure it says that it's, it's my right to do so. It's my, it's my property. All the world is, is God's. And, and one day, even though there's rebels running everywhere, usurping His authority, the Apostle Paul tells us in, in the book of Acts that God has appointed a day in which He'll call all of those rebels and usurpers into account. It's the day of, of judgment. All rebellion will end that day. The Bible tells us that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord. And they'll do that either, either by their free confession because of salvation or they'll acknowledge His Lordship and go to their, go to their, their judgment. But until that day, they're rebels. And, and I want you to notice in verse 2, what John is told to measure, besides the, the, the actual temple and the altar, he's told to measure people. Verse, the end of verse 1, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, those who worship there. He's to take this reed or this rod and not just measure the temple, but the people that are worshiping in the, in the temple. And he's not to measure the outer court or the Gentile people that are in it. God is identifying by John's read those who are his and those who are not. Now, who's worshiping in the temple at this time? It's the Jews. God's not forsaken Israel. Don't you think for a single minute what you see on the news means that somehow God's forsaken them? They are under judgment. And those who die without Christ perish. But God still has a future plan for Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. God will, will have a literal kingdom. And here is an evidence of that. Here is the temple that's associated with, with the Jews, the ones that they will rebuild. And here is the, 
the people of, of God. The temple and where the worship of Yahweh takes place, they're His. The Gentile court is not His. The people who worship Him are His. The outer courtyard is profaned. And so are the Gentiles that are in it. And, and the reed not only claims authority, but it, but it measures their worship. It tells the tale about the worship going on inside the temple. Now, a reed, a natural reed, would have been somewhere between 10 to 20 feet long. And so that would have been wonderful to, to, to measure a really large structure. You know, 20 foot long, really light pole, you can lay that up there and, and do some measuring. But a, but a 10 to 20 foot pole isn't a very good measuring stick for a human being. I mean, you probably did this with your kids. You probably still have marks somewhere on your ha- in your house. And um, there might be some of you that that are that are plus six foot, but that's that's not that's not a normal thing. The size of this of this reed, whenever it would have been placed up against the people that are worshiping there, would have shown very clearly that that they come up short. They fail to meet God's standards. And and, and notice he's he's worshiping he's he's measuring those who worship. There, And while God's claiming ownership, He's also showing the worshipers that are there, they fall short of His standards, pointing them to something else that's coming. This is not the, the, the promised worship that's happening in the temple. The king will come, and the kingdom, and then their worship will measure up. But until then, that's not the case. God's preserving a remnant here, and until the day when they see their Messiah, the one whom they pierced, at that point they will bow down and worship Him, and then and only then will their worship measure up. I can remember um, talking to, I've shared this with you before, but for those of you who, who weren't here, it's appropriate to share it here, We're, uh, witnessing to Boaz, our Jewish friend who's who's been here before. And we talked to him about... Uh, who does he believe that Jesus Christ is as a, as a Jew? He's, he's not a believer. He's not hostile to the gospel. He believes that Jesus was a, a literal person. He believes he performed miracles. He believes he was a great rabbi. He believes the New Testament as far as the, the historical facts there. But he does not... He says he's unconvinced. He's uncommitted as to whether Jesus is the, is the, the Messiah. His... His Messiah. And the first time I was talking to him, he ended that conversation with, with this. However, if Jesus Christ is the Messiah, when Messiah comes, if it's Jesus, I will gladly bow the knee to him on that day. And I said, there's only one problem with that. Um, unless you're alive on that day, it will be, it will be too late. Um, every knee will bow, <laughs> not just not just the Jews. And on the day when Messiah comes, and the Jews bow, and they enter into the kingdom, perfected and and purified, then the worship in the temple will be right, and the measure of their worship will be right. And so, when you put this first scene all together, John's saying that in the tribulation period. God still claims His people. Even Israel, who is insufficiently worshiping Him, 
And during that time, he'll allow unbelievers who are not his to have dominion everywhere over the earth for the first three and a half years. That's exactly what Daniel 9.27 and Daniel 12.11 foretells that during this period of the tribulation, Jews will return to sacrificing and they'll reconstruct the temple. But in the second three and a half years, which is what John's going to unveil next, the Antichrist will come. And when he comes, he'll come into the temple, he'll profane the temple, he'll set up idolatrous worship there, and he'll claim to be God. And at that moment, the Gentiles won't just be in the outer courts, they'll be in the inner courts, and there'll be an image of the Antichrist set up there. And when that happens, the Jews will, will, will forsake rebel, turn, however you want to, to say that from that idolatrous worship. Listen to Matthew 24, verse 15. This is in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination of desolation described by Daniel the prophet, let, let the reader understand. Mark chapter 13, verse 14 says, So when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And the Jews will flee at this point and be preserved by God. A remnant will be preserved by God. We'll see in the, in the chapters to come. God will protect them from the wrath of the, wrath of the Antichrist. And when that idol is placed in the temple, the Jews will reject the world leader the world will embrace him, and this will lead him to turn on them, and, and that's what's being set up here. But that's not all. Look at what else John sees in, in verse 3. He sees the measuring of the temple. He also sees two witnesses. Verse 3. He says, And I will, will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days, three and a half years, clothed in sack. God will grant two witnesses authority and power, or power if you will, and these two witnesses will preach for three and a half years. Now there's some debate of whether this is the first three and a half years or the second three and a half years. I think it's clear in my mind that it's the second three and a half years of when they will preach. And I'll show you why if I remember. Here's the turning point in the, in the tribulation. The first three and a half years... While the judgments are coming, the Jews will be worshiping God still blindly, but worshiping nonetheless. They won't be embracing Jesus as their Messiah. They'll be holding on to, to their form of worship, just like they're doing today. They'll even resurrect the temple. And when Antichrist declares himself to be God, sets up the image in the temple, the Jews will reject him. God raises up these two witnesses to preach during this last half of the tribulation period. And look at the details revealed about these, these two witnesses. They, they will prophesy, verse 3 says. They'll preach like prophets. They'll be like the prophets of old. 
Look at their garments. They're, they're clothed in sackcloth. If you read your Bible, any at all, you know sackcloth and ashes. It's a symbol of mourning or a symbol of, of, um, of humility. And a lot of times the prophets would, um, would dress the part, if you will. And they're proclaiming mourning. They're proclaiming a message of repentance and what is coming. And they're dressed in sackcloth. And they're, they're expressing their sorrow for those refusing to repent. And the sorrow that those that they're preaching to ought to be able, ought to be um, communicating to God. So they're prophesying, they're, they're preaching, they're clothed like prophets, they're clothed in, in garments of, of, of mourning. And look at verse 4. They're called the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of, of earth. Now that's not just a random identifier. This is something directly from Zechariah chapter 4. Verses 1 through 14. I'll read it to you, at least the parts that I want to, but I encourage you to go back there and read it because it's, uh, it's foretelling a spiritual revival that's going to take place in the end. And it's going to be something that's going to happen to the Jews or with the Jews. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the seven, and on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the, to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it. One at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And then he describes it, but he summarizes it in verse 13. So I'm going to jump to verse 13. He asked the question again, Do you know what this is? No. Who are they? What is it? And the angel answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said, this is the answer to the olive trees and the lampstands, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. This is a direct reference to Zechariah. In the vision that John sees, in the vision that Zechariah sees, the the olive trees, the significance of the olive trees and the lampstands is they're connected. The olive trees are to the right and to the left of the, of the, of the menorah or the lampstands in the temple. And the lamp would give light and that light would come from the olive oil that's there. And there's pipes that are, that are connected to the olive trees. And the, and the idea is there's, these are two live trees. So there's a continual flow of oil coming from the trees into the, into the lampstands. And they're, they're, there's a continual supply of oil, so there's continual light. And, and the oil symbolizes the, the Spirit of God in Zechariah. By the Spirit, in that, the part that I didn't read. And the lampstands are, are the light. 
So these, the coming of these two witnesses is going to lead to a, a spiritual revival from God and the coming kingdom where, where there will be a temple and its worship will be, will be pure. And what do they do? Look at verse 5. It says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their, their enemy. They have the power to kill. Now, symbolically, fire from, from their mouth, it just literally means they can speak and they'll die. It's something that God grants them. Um, Ananias and Sapphira, in the book of Acts. They're standing there. And before the apostles, Peter speaks, and they fall dead. There's no lightning bolt that comes out of heaven. God can stop your heart, stop anybody's heart, immediately if He wants to. And He gives them the power to speak, and people die. They also have the power over nature. Look at what it says in verse 6. They have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they're going to preach for, for three and a half years. They can shut up the sky. God also gives them the power to bring plagues. The end of verse 6. They have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they, they desire. Now, I would say this is probably the strongest evidence that comes close to identifying who these, who these men are. Um, I hate to disappoint Richard, but I want you to notice that the witnesses are not named. Okay, So you can't be dogmatic. Um, so I have to disappoint him and say, I can't tell you for 100% sure, but I'd also have to disappoint him because... He believes that this is Enoch and Elijah, and I would say that their description is very similar to Moses and Elijah. Now, why do I say that? Like Elijah, they, they can call fire down out of, out of heaven. Like Elijah, they have the power to shut up the rain. That's, that's the primary miracle that's, that's associated with Elijah. Like Moses, they have the power to plague the rivers, turn the rivers to blood, and plague the, the, the land. And that's the primary uh, prophetic ministry, if you, if you will, of, of Moses. And Jews, both expected, they, Jews expected both Moses and Elijah to return in the, in the future. And probably, more important to me, um, who do you see with Jesus... At the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah. And this is the transfiguration is a glorification of the Son. It's a precursor to His glorification. They get a glimpse of, of Jesus, His deity. And here is a, is a precursor to the glorious return of, of Christ. The argument that's typically used that this can't be that this is not Moses, it can't be Moses, is because that Moses has already died. So who are the two individuals in the Bible that, that were called up into heaven without, without dying? It's, it's Enoch and Elijah. And so they would say that this can't be Moses because the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. 
and the witness dies here, so that can't be Moses because that verse says it's appointed a man wants to wants to die. And um, I, I I think that overlooks two things. Um, one, it, that passage is appointed unto man once to die is is a is a is an absolute truth, <laughs> but it's it's spoken like a general principle. Mankind dies and then they and then they face the judgment. Um, believers are going to be raptured without without dying, and we're not going to face judgment. So I mean, it's a, it's a principle. It's appointed unto man to die, and then. You're going to face the judgment, those who are outside of Christ. So uh, it wouldn't prohibit God from, from raising someone for a specific reason. And, and you might think of like the mini-resurrection that, that took place uh, at the cross. You remember when the graves are opened? You know, well, I mean, I guess you conclude that those people resurrected or went up into to heaven, but... But, but it's a little unclear. Did they, did they live on the earth and then, and then die again? Um, so I don't think that that verse would prohibit God from from uh, from raising someone like these two witnesses for for a specific reason. Uh, this also is a supernatural event. This is supernatural from start to finish. So all natural bets are off. <laughs> um, if God can give these witnesses these kind of pow- this kind of power and raise them from the dead, He can do whatever He wants. If He wants to bring Moses back, and I also think it's interesting that 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 Moses' body is. is is buried somewhere that you know that, that that we don't know, regardless of of who they they are. John's point is that God sends two witnesses, and they have immense power, and they're preaching, and they're unstoppable during their preaching ministry. They have authority. God's granted them that authority. But when God's timetable ends, then then they're killed. Look at look at verse seven. The witnesses are, are killed by the, the Antichrist. It says, when they finish their testimony. And it's already given us the time frame. They're going to preach for three and a half years. So at the end of that three and a half years, when God, point in time for them is done and their preaching ministry is done, then the beast descends out of the bottomless pit and will make war against them, overcome them, and, and kill them. This is the first time the beast is mentioned in, um, in Revelation. When God's time was done, the beast makes war and, and he prevails. It's the first time that the beast is mentioned, but it's the first of 36 total times in Revelation. That's a, a key figure, and you're going to hear him a whole lot. Um, as we move into this second three and a half years. Revelation 13 identifies who the beast is. Revelation 13 says that this is the human world ruler who is the Antichrist. Now, I can remember growing up when Ronald Reagan was, was president and there was this guy named Mikhail Gorbachev. Do you remember him? And I can remember sitting in church, and I can remember people saying that he was the Antichrist. And they, they would show pictures and would point to that little strawberry, that birthmark on his head. And they would show symbols of what that birthmark was, and that was the evidence. That was the mark of the beast. And Mikhail Gorbachev was the, 
was the, the Antichrist. Well, you could probably put some other names in there that you would say acts like the Antichrist. At least one of them probably can't be the Antichrist because she's a woman. I better, I better stop now, Hadna, before I get in trouble. But this beast is the human world ruler. And the human world ruler is the Antichrist. And he is empowered by Satan, and he leads the rebellion against God, leads the world rebellion against God. And this idea that the beast descends out of the, out of the bottomless pit to make, to make war means he's, he's empowered. He, his, his source comes from the bottomless pit. He's, he's empowered by demonic presence, which comes from the, comes from the domain of Satan. It comes from the pit. And the witnesses are killed. In verse 8, their bodies are desecrated in the, in the street. Look at verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. But look at how he specifically identifies the location. Spiritually, this, this city Jerusalem is acting like Sodom. It's acting like Egypt. It's godless. But it is Jerusalem, no doubt about it, because it's where also our Lord was crucified. You can't get around that. So the bodies are desecrated. They're left to rot in Jerusalem in mockery. And the people of the earth rejoice at their death. And, and if, you were, if you were in that number of godless, you, you, could, you could probably understand why. I mean, they have the power to, to, to preach. And as they're preaching, they're, they're bringing plagues and, and otherwise. And these individuals will not repent. They hate them. You think that the hatred of God and preachers of the gospel and you who, who faithfully witness for Christ is, is bad today. And it is horrible. Um, it, it will be on, on a massive scale in, in this day. Verse 9, Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not permit or allow their dead bodies to be put in the, in the grave. So they're laying in Jerusalem... But nations, tribes, and tongues will see them. Well, how will they do that? Well, I don't know when this is going to take place. I know it will take place in the future, but, but that could happen right now. I mean, you see things that, that take place all over the world through, through TV, through the Internet, through, through otherwise. They'll leave their bodies. They won't allow them to be buried. This is a morbid display of contempt. Those who heard their message to repent and rejected it now celebrate their demise. This is one of the sickest things in the Bible. What comes next? Verse 10. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Exchange presents on Christmas. They will, they will have a dead witness day. And they'll give gifts to one another, celebrating. They'll gloat that their leader has done the witnesses in, 
inaugurating celebrations around the globe. Look at the end of verse 10. Because the two prophets tormented those who, who dwell on the earth. The celebration doesn't last long, does it? The witnesses are resurrected. They get three and a half days of, of celebration related to the three and a half years of the preaching of judgment that's coming. Go verse 11. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. Just like God gave breath to, to Adam. I mean, think about it. If God can take dirt and form a man out of it and make him breathe, he can do that here. I mean, people approach the Bible and say, well, that, that's, that's, that's fanciful stuff. You know, how, how, could, you, how could you believe those, those wild ideas? There's this idea of it's, Ill, it's illogical. It's not reasonable. It's absolutely reasonable depending upon your presuppositions, what you understand. You believe the Bible is the, is the Word of God. You believe that, that, that God is the Creator. It's totally logical that God could resurrect someone. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15? When they're saying, how could the dead be raised? And Paul says, how can you be so foolish? Um, you see many resurrections all the time. You put a seed in the ground, it dies, and something resurrects from it. Um, why is it a, why is it such a, Hard thing to grasp that God could give a could give a spiritual body to you in heaven. He gave you an earthly body that was fit for the earth, for the domain of the earth. It's flesh and blood. It breathes. He gives a specific body to fish to swim in the water. He gives specific body to the to the birds to fit for their environment. He gave you a body fit for the earth. He'll give you a body fit for heaven. What's the big deal about that? That's what Paul is saying in First Corinthians. 15, breath of life from God enters them, and they stood to their feet. This is this dramatic moment. These dead bodies that have been laying in Jerusalem for three and a half days, breath, and they stand to their feet. Now, you talk about people freaking out. That was probably a sight to, to behold. Talk about raining on the parade. Can you imagine the panic that will ensue? But that's not all. Not only do they, do they start breathing and stand to their feet, and because of that great fear falls on all who sees them, but there is a loud voice. They heard a loud voice in verse 12 from heaven saying, Come up here. And the two men at that command ascend to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. Watch the, the enemies see the breath and they stand on their feet. Fear falls in them. They hear the loud voice from heaven say, come up here. And they see them ascend into the heaven. And that's not all. Look at verse 13. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. And in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest 
were afraid and gave glory to the to the God of of heaven. Now it's interesting this last phrase, the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. That that's a different group than those who are identified here as as the ones who saw and and the ones that had fear fall upon them. And so I would say that this group that gives glory to the God of heaven is is a remnant of believers, maybe the Jews, I don't know, it doesn't identify them, but it seems to be a different group that's, uh, that's there. It could be just an acknowledgement out of fear that will be spurious and quickly turn away because they're still going to be shaking their fist in God's face as you'll see. And the scene ends with verse 14. Ominous words. The second woe is past. And behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And then what comes next is the, the seventh trumpet and the, the kingdom that's, that's proclaimed. What do you take away from... Revelation 11, I take away that God is faithful to His promises. He'll not forsake His people. He made a covenant with Israel, and even though they've rejected Him, and even though we are wild olive branches grafted in to provoke Israel to to jealousy, and we get to participate in the same covenant because of Christ, Jew or Gentile, He's the... Jesus is, salvation is of the Jews. It's freely offered to, to Jew and, and Gentile. God will not forsake um, His people. And if He won't forsake them, He's not going to forsake us. No matter what, uh, what circumstances we, we find ourselves in. Fascinating, fascinating chapter and. uh, and more to come.